when we think about Jesus's life, there's one aspect to his life that I think we easily overlook. And it's the fact that I believe that Jesus loved to party. (laughs) I know that sounds weird to hear. It feels weird to say. But have you ever noticed throughout the Gospels just how many times Jesus shows up at parties? All throughout the Gospels, he's at banquets, he's at feasts, he's having dinner parties with people. There's references to, to, to Jesus spending time and celebrating with people all through the gospel. In fact, there's one time when Jesus is even called a glutton and a drunkard. But Jesus, he loved banquets. In fact, his first miracle was at a wedding banquet where he turned water into the finest wine. And then in the end of scripture, the, all things are summed up with the wedding feast of the lamb where Christ and his church come together as bride and bridegroom, and there is much rejoicing, and there is celebration and joy. Banquets form a significant portion of Jesus's life. Now, today, we're going to look at another banquet. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to look at this banquet that we call the Feeding of the 5,000. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 30. And what we're going to do is we're going to see that in this feeding of the 5,000, that this event is actually a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. In the Gospel of John, John does not call this a miracle. He calls this a sign. And a sign is something that points beyond itself to a larger reality. But a sign also lets us experience just a taste of that larger reality to come. For Mark, this event serves to further the evidence that of the good news that Jesus really is the Son of God. And so what I think we're going to see this morning as we look at Mark chapter 6 is we're going to see what the kingdom is like. And I think that through the feeding of the 5,000, we're also going to see what the king of the kingdom is like. And I also believe that we'll get a sense of what it means to serve this king in this kingdom of God. And so let's go ahead and just dive right in, right? We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 30. And in verse 30, it says this. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, now last week, we looked at the event where Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, and he sends them out equipped with his own authority, and that authority is over unclean spirits. And what do they do? They go from village to village. They are calling people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near, and they heal many people, and they cast out many demons. Well, what we saw was what they were doing was they were proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom. But in particular, we saw that they were also proclaiming a new exodus. We were proclaiming a new exodus, that once again, Israel would be brought out of slavery to her sins and led on a new exodus towards new life. And this new life would be in the kingdom that in Jesus was made present. And so today what we do is we pick up with the apostles as they complete this mission. And they return back to Jesus, and they're reporting to Jesus all that they had done. 
The feeding of the 5,000 is a continuation of that original mission. Now, there is a sense of excitement among the, uh, among the um, apostles. There's also a sense of excitement among all the people of the villages because they're pressing in on them. They're not even giving them a, a chance to eat or to take a break. And so Jesus says, well, let's, let's go away then. Let's, let's find a place to, to rest. And so Jesus himself instructs them to come away to a desolate place in order to rest. Now, this idea of a desolate place is actually extremely important because it shows up multiple times throughout the passage. That particular word desolate shows up multiple times throughout this passage. Now, the ESV Bible, if you're using that, it will translate that word as desolate. Other translations, your translation may say something like an isolated place or a solitary place or a secluded place. It's, those are good words and they're trying to get at a nuance, but I, I'm convinced that the word desolate really is the best word to translate here because it's not that they're just trying to get away to rest. I think that there's something deeper going on in this particular text, and here's what I mean. Remember the 12, they were sent out on mission to proclaim the nearness of the kingdom and the new exodus. Well, if you remember the story of the original exodus, what does Israel do? Israel wanders around in the wilderness, a desolate place for 40 years. But then what does God, what does God do for them in that desert? God feeds them with manna from heaven the entire time. And Jesus will go on and eventually say that, that he is the bread from heaven that is given for the life of the world. See, Jesus takes his disciples out to this desolate wilderness type place, this place of seeming impossibility. And it's in that place, it's in that place that Jesus throws an abundant party. There's another aspect of this wilderness, this kind of wilderness type places of desolation that are very spiritually significant. You see, spiritually speaking, desolate places are places of testing, they are places of purification, and they are places of even preparation, preparation for something new. And so in the wilderness, what happens is everything that gives you security is stripped away from you. And God does that in our lives in order that we would cling closely to him so that we would see him as our only provider and as our only source of hope. You see, it's in these times of testing and purification that throughout church history have been, uh, have been labeled as dark nights of the soul. And these aren't just places. These are times. These are times in our lives, times in which it seems like everything that we hold on to, everything that we have is just kind of stripped away from us. And so internally, it feels like we literally have nothing left. There's a funny thing that happens when we journey with Jesus, that Jesus himself leads us through these desolate, dark nights of the soul. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is both a right and a good thing. Last year, my neighbor, whose name was Craig, he was renovating his house. He was about to put it on the market, and he, so he wanted it to look nice, and he's doing all the stuff that you do before you sell your house. Well, one day I'm sitting, I'm sitting inside and, and my boys come running in the door and they're like, daddy, daddy, Mr. Craig has a flamethrower. And I'm like, 
okay, well, anytime you hear someone has a flamethrower, you stop what you're doing and you go outside, right? Sure enough, my neighbor, he had a flamethrower. And what he was doing was he was burning his yard, not like a big ball of fire or anything, but he was very methodically going back and forth across his yard, burning off all the old grass, burning off all the old weeds. Now, I don't do much landscaping, but those of you who do may know that this is actually a pretty common form of landscaping, because what happens is you take, you take, a, you take a blowtorch or a flamethrower and you burn out all the weeds, you burn out all the old grass, all the way down to the roots, so that when you till up your yard and you plant new seed and new grass comes, old grass and old weeds don't come back up to, to, destroy, the, to destroy all your hard, your hard work. Well, sure enough, by the time that Craig was done, his yard was full, it was thick, it was lush, it was green. But in order to get there, it took fire. It took tilling up the soil. And it took a lot of waiting. Friends, I believe that the spiritual life is a lot like this. We are being sanctified. And as the Spirit sanctifies us and renews us and forms us into Christ's likeness, the Spirit of God will lead us to these desolate places. And he does that because even though we're justified by faith alone, we are still sinners who hold on to the old things of life. We still hold on to the old loves and the old sinful ways and these old things only burden us and they lead us astray and they keep us from fully experiencing intimacy with God and new life in Christ. Let's face it, we're a people who are overly preoccupied with ourselves and our own selfish desires. But when we are in a, des a desolate place, the spirit can strip all of that away because a desolate environment isn't conducive for letting the old things flourish. It acts like a deconditioning, if you will, where old things are burned away in a refiner's fire so that new things can grow, things that connect us with God and not separate us from him, and so that we can love God and love the way that God loves and, sees the, and see the world the way that God sees the world. So friends, if that's where you are today, let me encourage you to rejoice. I believe God's probably doing something in your life and I encourage you to press into that and let new life grow in your heart because it is Jesus himself who leads through these desolate places. It was Jesus himself who took the apostles to this desolate place and for them it acted as a place of purification and preparation for their role in this great banquet of the kingdom. Now what happens? When they leave, they cross, and by the time they get to the other side of the lake where, they, where they're going and they think they're going to get some rest, there's already a large crowd there. Verse 34 tells us Jesus' reaction. They get off the boat, and it says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and, they began to and then he began to teach them many things. Now, I have to be honest with you. I think Jesus' response here is the real miracle of the story. <laughs> because I'm assuming that the apostles are probably reacting the way that I would react, like saying, oh, come on, just, just one day, just, just a little bit of time to rest, please. But when Jesus gets off the boat and he sees the crowd, something reignites his passion, if you will. It says he had compassion on the crowd. And his compassion comes because he can see the crowds in a way that the apostles can't see the crowds. But he wants to train them, and I believe he wants to train us to also see the crowds the way that he does, the way that he sees them. 
See, Martin tells us quite often throughout his gospel that Jesus has compassion. Jesus will have compassion on the demon-possessed. Jesus will have compassion on those who have dying children. Jesus is a compassionate king. And that's a truth that I believe Mark wants us to hold on to. And I believe that there are a couple things at play that help us to understand what it means that Jesus is a compassionate king. I believe that there's an important comparison and an important contrast at play in this particular passage. I believe the comparisons come from a couple Old Testament texts. One text comes from our reading this morning in Isaiah 15. I'm sorry, Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who has a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, God dwells on high and at the same time, he dwells with the lowly. And so the crowds in this passage are the very people that the incarnate God dwells with. There's also another reference at play in the background of this particular passage, and it comes from the prophet Ezekiel, which is Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, through Ezekiel, God is condemning all of the false leaders of Israel. He's calling them evil shepherds who, instead of taking care of God's people, he, they have exploited them for their own gain and they've scattered God's flock and have left them to be hungry and exposed them to all kinds of dangers. Well, in response, through Ezekiel, God gives this promise. It says this, it says, one day God says, I will set over them, that's his people, one shepherd, David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. See, this is why that Jesus can look at the crowd and see them as, as sheep without a shepherd. Right? Mark wants us to, to, to compare Jesus with these Old Testament passages and others. Well, there's also, there's also an important contrast going on in this passage. Jesus is the compassionate king who feeds the shepherdless crowds, and Mark wants us to contrast Jesus' kingship with the type of king that Herod is. You see, sandwiched in between the sending out of the 12 and their return and this feeding of the 5,000 is this story about the execution of John the Baptist. That's Mark 6, 14 through 29. Now, we're not gonna read it this morning, but I do wanna point out just a couple things about it. You see, John is in prison because he has called out, he has condemned Herod for marrying his brother's wife, Herodias, and, and his brother's wife has held a grudge against John the Baptist. Well, in verse 21, here's what happens. It says that Herod throws himself a party. He throws a banquet. It's his birthday. He is the guest of honor. Now, birthday parties aren't bad. Those aren't bad things. But what Mark is wanting to say is wanting to, or wanting to show us is Herod's own self-absorbed narcissism, if you will. Because look at the guest list. It says, Herod throws himself a banquet and he invited his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Notice that guest list. That's all the people with money, power, and influence. There's not a commoner in that group. The reason why is because the normal people of life don't have anything to offer him. You see, the rulers of this world know that to keep their own power, 
They need to get other powerful people on their side. That's why the Herods of this world throw extravagant parties and do extravagant military parades and things like that is to show just how powerful and rich and wealthy they actually are. Otherwise, other powerful, other powerful people would stop being their allies. Dare I say that the more extravagant the Herods of the worlds are, the more self-conscious and insecure they actually turn out to be. See, here, Herod is at a party. He's thrown a party for the rich and the powerful, and his stepdaughter is the evening's entertainment. She comes, and she dances for everybody, and everybody loves her. And so, in order to show just how wealthy he is, Herod gets up, and he says, ask me anything, and I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. Now, that sounds like a pretty good gift, but the thing is, is that it's not a gift at all. It's actually just a way of him showing just how, just how wealthy he actually is. Well, instead of asking for money or power, she asks for John the Baptist to be beheaded. And Herod did not want to do that. He didn't want to do that. But more than that, he didn't want to look weak in front of his guests, as the scriptures say. And so what does he do? Is he has John the Baptist beheaded, he brings his head, they bring his head in on a plate, and then the story ends with John the Baptist's followers coming and getting his body and burying him. See, for Mark, the banquets of the Herods of the world only end in death. Only end in death. The Herods of the world are like the evil shepherds of Ezekiel 34 who only take and only exploit, but contrast that with the fact that Jesus is the compassionate king. You see, unlike the Herods of the world, Jesus doesn't need the rich and the powerful and the influential because Jesus is the incarnate son of God who dwells in the high and lofty place. All the earth is already his. He doesn't need people to prop up his power. He doesn't need people to tell him how great he is. He doesn't need empty flattery. You see, in the words of the song that we, that we sang a little bit ago, right? Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else can make every king bow down? Only a holy God. Jesus is not an insecure king like Herod. That's why he can leave all of it behind and step down into heaven and be with those who need a shepherd. Mark wants us to contrast Jesus' compassion with Herod's self-indulgence. And ultimately, the call is for us to forsake all the Herods of the world whose kingdoms only end in death in order that we may fully follow the shepherd king whose kingdom leads to life. And that's what we see held out before us in the rest of this passage, is a banquet that doesn't lead to death, but that leads to life. And so as the story goes on, the apostles who were originally the sent out ones, what do they do? They come to Jesus and they say, Send the crowds away. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. You give them something to eat. And of course, the, the apostles are dumbfounded because they don't have anything. Well, they've got five loaves and two fish. But that's, you know, what is that, right? And so, verse 39, Jesus commands them to have everyone sit down in groups on the green grass so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, and said a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and he set them before the people and he divided the two fish among all of them. And they all ate and they were satisfied and they all took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of fish and of bread. 
See, here in this desolate place, Jesus goes and tells them to sit down and to prepare themselves for a great banquet. And what Jesus has done here is he has stripped away all of the disciples' illusions that they might have anything to offer. They have nothing, and whatever little they do have is not worth much of anything anyways. But it's at that point, it's at that point that Jesus is able to work in their lives so that they can properly serve Jesus and properly serve Christ by serving those whom Christ loves. And that's how they're able to participate in Christ's mission in the world. And they do so in a way that they can't boast in themselves. They can only boast in Christ. And they can only boast in Christ because Jesus has just done here what only Jesus can do. He takes what they have, he blesses it, and he gives, them back, gives it back to them abundantly. You know, throughout Scripture, this is what we see Jesus doing all the time. Taking what we have, blessing it, transforming it, and giving it back to us abundantly. We see people bringing their loved ones who are sick and dying to Jesus. And Jesus takes them, touches them, blesses them, and he gives them back to them, restored and made whole. Peter in Matthew 19 says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, we've left everything for your sake. And Jesus says, in the new creation, you'll receive back a hundredfold everything that you have given up for my sake. Jesus said, if we want to find our life, we must lose our life, right? The idea is that when we give our old life to Christ, he takes it and he hands it back to us as something completely new. He gives us new life, the life of the ages, and he can do that because there was a time when the world handed Jesus a cross, a symbol of shame and death, and Jesus takes it and he gives it back to the world as a symbol of God's redeeming love and everlasting life. Jesus always takes what is given to him and he gives it back in abundance. Now, do not hear the prosperity gospel in that. We're not talking about finite resources. What we're talking about is the depth of human longing and need. And that's what only Jesus can satisfy and satisfy abundantly. The abundance of Jesus is much different than the extravagance of Herod. Herod's extravagance was wasteful it was showy and it served only Herod's own ego. But Jesus' abundance is compassionate because he gives according to our need. He gives according to our need and because of that, there's nothing wasted. It always satisfies, it always gives new life and new life is what we need. He takes our old life and he gives us a new life abundantly. On that day, over 5,000 people ate bread and fish and they were satisfied. But that was only a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that Jesus invites us to because it's that banquet that can only satisfy a hungry soul and a thirsty heart. Now, friends, let me ask you, what in your life today do you need to give over to Jesus to let him take and transform and give back to you in abundance. Friends, in just a few minutes, we're gonna, we're gonna pray and we're gonna confess our sins. And I invite you to press into that time and to, to give over to Jesus those things that keep you from experiencing life and let him 
take it from you and let him transform it and give it back to you so that you might experience life and so that we can come to, the, to this table, this Eucharist, where Christ is the host, which is also a foretaste of the heavenly banquet where the bread that we take is his body broken for us and we feed on his presence. What in your life is keeping you from Christ that you need to give to him and let him take and give back to you in abundance? Because only Jesus can do that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.